Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. We continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew this morning, and we're in Matthew chapter 22. And let me remind you of the context here. Um, we are in the, the week leading up to the crucifixion. Um, we've, a couple of chapters ago, we had what is referred to as Palm Sunday, right, where Jesus um, came in riding on the, the, the foal of a donkey, fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, showing that he is the promised Messiah, the promised king who had come to, to save and to rule over his people. And remember, when, as he came in, to the, to, uh, in, in that symbolism, and as he came in to the shouts of those who were, the pilgrims who were traveling with him, he went into the temple and he cleansed the temple. And he was um, seeking to restore the temple to its intended purpose, and he was also really symbolizing the judgment that was coming on the nation of Israel and on the religious leaders and the religious system because they had become so corrupt. And, and so... Um, Jesus is making a spectacle and he is really uh, ruffling the feathers of, of the religious leaders of his enemies. And so they, uh, later when Jesus comes back into the temple courts and is teaching, the religious leaders confronted him and said, who do you think you are, Jesus? Who gives you the authority to come in here claiming to be the Messiah, to come into our temple and, and, and do what you did, overturning the tables and, and driving out the money changers? How dare you? Right, And so in response to that, Jesus um, gave them three parables. And we, last time we were in Matthew, we looked at two of those, and now we've come to the third of those parables. And so the, this parable is directed specifically to the religious leaders, but certainly the crowds are around as well who are, are hearing him teach and proclaim this. So with that in mind, let's stand together, please, once again in honor of God's word. And please follow along as I read our text this morning, Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Thanks be to God for his word. Please be seated. 
In our text today, Jesus gives a parable about a king throwing a wedding feast for his son. And again, to understand the symbolism, right, it comes through pretty, pretty clear. God is the king. God the Father is the king. The Lord Jesus Christ is the son. And then here's an important thing to understand. The feast symbolizes the kingdom of heaven. Right? Isn't that what Jesus said in verse 2? The kingdom of heaven may be compared to, and then he describes the scenario. And remember, kingdom of heaven is Matthew's way of saying kingdom of God. So coming to the feast means entering the kingdom of God. Now if you'll recall, the kingdom of God is God's redemptive rule over his people. So entering the kingdom of God is, is to be saved. Right? Entering the kingdom of God is to have your sins forgiven, to be reconciled to God, your creator. And so here that is described or symbolized as a, a wedding feast. And really, if you think about it, that's an appropriate um, illustration, an appropriate picture. Especially in their culture, because a wedding feast was, was a joyful celebration that went on for days. And so what a, what a good picture of what it looks like to be saved, right? To enter the kingdom of God is the, is the greatest of joys. To know that your sins are forgiven. To know that you are one of God's beloved children. To know that you've been adopted into God's family. To know that you, that you are God's people, that he is your God and you are one of his. To know that you have eternal life and that you'll be with God forever in his perfect kingdom. I mean, really, there could be no greater joy than to be saved, than to enter the kingdom of God. And what we see today from this parable is that God invites many people to be saved, many people to come to the feast, to enter the kingdom of God. And some accept that invitation, praise God. But sadly, others reject God's gracious invitation. To enter the kingdom of God and be saved. And please understand, every one of us here today, hearing this sermon, is going to be in one of those two camps. Either you will accept God's invitation or have accepted God's invitation to salvation and eternal life. Or you will reject his invitation and remain headed for eternal destruction. So let's look at verse 2 together. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. You see, in their culture, when you were throwing a wedding celebration, you sent out invitations ahead of time. I guess we could kind of say like getting RSVPs, right? And then once the feast is ready, you sent out a summons to gather people for the banquet. And so that's what the king does here in verse 3. He sends servants out to the people who had already been invited, to the people who said they were coming. Of course, who would refuse the king, right? To let them know that it's time to attend. Right? So that's what he's doing in verse 3. Sending servants out saying, hey guys, the feast is ready. The time has come. Come to the wedding feast. The food's prepared. Everything's ready. Okay? So it was a two-step, two I should say, process. There's the original invitations and then later the summons when the banquet was ready. 
And I, I emphasize that because that's what has been happening in redemptive history up to this point here in Matthew. God, through the prophets, has been, if you will, inviting the nation of Israel to enter into the joy of the kingdom of God. That kingdom that has been promised for, for generations, right? The, the, the kingdom that the promised Messiah would establish when he came and to rescue and to rule over his people. And certainly Israel had, had again, if you want to say RSVP'd, yes, yeah, we want to be in that kingdom, right? We're looking forward to that kingdom. This is the long-awaited kingdom, right? They would pray, Lord, bring your kingdom. They were looking for and anticipating the coming of the Messiah. They wanted to be in that kingdom. They wanted to experience that. Well, now with the arrival of Jesus, the summons is going out that the time has come. The kingdom of God is here, right? That's what John the Baptist has been preaching. That's what Jesus has been preaching. That's what he sent the, 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 the apostles out to preach. The Messiah has come. The kingdom of God is here. It's time for the wedding feast. It's time to enter the kingdom of God. It's time to experience the joy of salvation. The Messiah has come to deliver you And as we've explained, from sin and death, right? He's come to deliver you from sin and death, your greatest enemies. But look here at the parable that Jesus is giving. What happens when the servants summon those who were invited to the wedding feast? Look at the text. What happens? Verse 3. They would not come. Right? I mean, that should shock us. What? When the summons goes out and and, and they're told, hey, the feast is ready. Come, enjoy the presence of the king. Come, celebrate his son. But they would not come. These people had RSVP'd that they would come. And now that it's time for the wedding banquet, they're refusing to come. They're... They're standing the king up, we would say in our modern vernacular, right? They're they're insulting the king. They're insulting his son. But notice how patient the king is in verse 4. What does he do? Right? The summons has gone out. They've refused to come. Well, look what he does in verse 4. Amazingly, he sends out other servants. He, He sends out a second summons. He tells the servants to tell them, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. (laughs) I mean, the king is so patient, he sends more servants. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so as the king graciously summons them again, He has the servants explain to the people invited the blessings that are waiting for them at the feast, right? It's like he's he's encouraging them. He's giving them incentives, if you will. He's reminding these, you know, guys, come on. The great food has been prepared. You're going to love it. You're going to be blessed. Everything is ready. He's, He's offering this to you. Come to the wedding feast. Come rejoice with the king's son. Again, we we should be struck by how patient the king is, how kind and generous he is. 
that he wants to share his bounty, that he wants others to partake in the joy of celebrating his son. And so maybe this second summons is, is going to kind of bring the, the invited guests to their senses, right? Maybe it's going to kind of wake them up and they're going to say, yes, okay, you're right. We, we should come. What are we thinking? Is that what happens? No. Verse 5. But they, the, the invited guests, paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. Verse 6, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Still, the invited guests won't come. Still, the invited guests refuse the king. Some simply ignore the summons, right? Ah, they're busy. They're distracted with things of the world. Don't have time to go celebrate the, the sun. Don't have time to go rejoice with the king. We've got, we've got a farm to attend to. We've got jobs to focus on. We've got the pleasures of this world to pursue. But others are even more wicked in their rejection. Right? They, not, they don't just ignore. They seize the servants of the king. Persecuting them and even killing them. And again, we've seen Jesus explain this before. That's, that's the, 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 the uh, legacy of Israel. That's what they've done to the prophets who've gone before. That's what they did to John the Baptist, the, the last of the prophets, the one who was pointing the way to the Messiah, the one who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The time has come. He's here. Make, make ready. Make straight paths for him. Now, what did they do to him? They, the, the leaders, Herod, killed him, right? And now they're seeking to do the same to Jesus, who Jesus, who's been proclaiming the same thing. Hey, the time has come. The kingdom of God is here. How could, the, how could they treat the servants this way? How could they treat the king this way? Again, the king is being so generous. The king, the king wants to share his blessings. And they had originally said they would come, but now they're rejecting the king's gracious invitation. They think they have other things that are more important. So they're showing that they don't care about the king's son. They don't care about the king. Right? They've, they've scorned the king's generosity. They've, they've spurned his company. <laughs> we don't want to be in your presence. <laughs> we don't... They've, they've insulted his honor. They've rejected the king and his son. And remember, Jesus is saying this to, to Israel, especially to the religious leaders, because that is exactly what they've been doing. That's exactly what they are doing to God and to his anointed one, the Lord Jesus who stands right before them. The promised Messiah, Jesus, had come declaring that the kingdom of God was here. That the time had come to enter the kingdom of God by repenting of your sin and following him. But Israel, and especially the religious leaders, had rejected Jesus. They did not believe that Jesus was the promised king sent from God. Even though, again, Jesus was, was teaching with authority. He was doing all, the, all these uh, miraculous signs that the Messiah was predicted to do in the, old, in the prophets. 
He was powerfully demonstrating the inbreaking of the kingdom, and yet they still would not accept that Jesus was the king. They would not have Jesus rule over them. The people of Israel, by and large, were failing to enter the kingdom of God because they would not follow Jesus. They would not submit to his loving rule. And so they were scorning God's grace. They were rejecting God's son. And so now, how will God respond? Well, look at verse 7. Again, Jesus is continuing the parable here, right? The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers, right? They murdered his servants and burned their city. He's slow to anger, but, but his patience is, is done now. The king will not ignore this rebellion. The king will not let their murder go unpunished. So he sends his troops to destroy them and burn their city. And again, this is exactly what would happen very soon to the nation of Israel at this point. God would judge them for rejecting and killing Christ. God would punish Israel through the Romans, destroying Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, back to the parable here in verse 8, right? Up to this point, the, 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 the king has punished those who rejected him. But we have to ask, well, what about the wedding feast, right? I mean, do, do we just need to cancel it then? <laughs> do we call the whole thing off since they wouldn't come? No. Look at verse 8. Then he, the king, said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. So the original group showed themselves unworthy because they rejected the king and his son. But the king is not going to cancel the wedding. He's not going to cancel the banquet. The food is prepared. Everything is ready. The son will be honored. So the king sends his servants out to the main roads, right? To the thoroughfares where, you know, like going downtown to the bus station, right? Where you see all manner of folk. He, he, he tells the servants, invite, gather people. The people who were not on the original uh, list. Verse 10. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So the servants do as the king has commanded. They start inviting and gathering as many people as they can find, both bad and good. Now that doesn't mean that, oh, well, there were some people who deserved to be at this feast, right? The good people deserved to be at the feast, but the bad didn't. No, that's just Matthew's way of saying the servants invited people no matter who they were, right? No matter what their background was, the servants are inviting all kinds of people, including the outcasts of society, the down-and-outers, we would say, the poor, the irreligious. All are invited and gathered to, to the wedding feast put on by the king. So again, let's, let's just stop here and try to get the picture. Imagine what this would have been like for those people, right? I mean, anybody being invited to, to the king's banquet, that was a huge, huge honor but just put yourself in the place of some of these people. Some of, some of them would have just been, they didn't know about this. They were just sitting on the side of the streets, maybe begging for food. Others were mired in a, in a life of sin and hopelessness. Still others were just kind of busy in the daily grind, just kind of eking out their own existence. None of them ever dreaming of meeting the king. 
And now all of a sudden, servants of the king show up and invite them, compel them to come to the king's palace for a wedding wedding feast. And not only do they invite them, but they say that the, the feast is ready. The time is now. Come with me right now to this feast. Today you're going to dine with the king. So here one minute they're maybe begging for food. And the next thing they know they're at this lavish banquet. What, I mean one minute they were in rags. But now the, the king's servants have given them nice clean clothes to wear. One minute they were just living in isolation. And now they're, they're in this huge a banquet hall with all these other guests enjoying the, the lavish generosity of the king. Once they were in, one minute they were in a place of just misery and, and, and doldrum and now they're, they're in a place of joy and bounty. One minute they had never met the king and now they're in the very presence of the king. So do you see what's, what Jesus is talking about here? The servants going out and gathering all kinds of people for the feast. This pictures the gospel. It pictures the gospel going forth to the, first we could say to the, to the Jewish outsiders. And then also then to the Gentiles. And really, this is what we've already seen throughout Jesus' ministry, right? That the the Jewish leaders, the, the, the religious establishment has by and large rejected Jesus while it's been, what, who? The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the down and outers who have responded to Jesus. And already we've had a few examples of Gentiles as well responding to Jesus. And then certainly once Jesus dies... And and rises again here at the end of Matthew. The the risen Christ will commission his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And so the gospel would go forth throughout the world. All kinds of people will be invited and gathered. And that's exactly what the king's servants have done. Verse 10. The king's servants have gathered in all kinds of people. So that verse 10 says, look how it ends. The king's wedding hall is filled with guests. Praise God, the son will be honored. The king will be glorified. The wedding feast will be full. And the book of Revelation describes the redeemed as a great multitude, bigger than anyone can number, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, rejoicing in heaven because they've been saved through the blood of the Lamb. They've been saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They've been saved from their sins. And so this this picture is still happening today, right? Today the gospel goes forth and God is saving people from every nation. God is filling up his wedding banquet even today. As people, by God's grace, turn from their sins and embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior through faith. And so this parable was, again, remember the context here. Directed to the religious leaders who are 
plotting to kill Jesus, who are about to kill Jesus. This, this parable is a warning, right? It's a warning, and Israel, and especially the religious leaders, needed to heed this warning. The scribes and Pharisees had been invited to the feast, but they were choosing not to come because they were rejecting Jesus as the promised Messiah. And what their problem was, among other things, was they were assuming they were already in. <laughs> they assumed because, well, we're, we're children of Abraham, right, physically. They assumed because of their heritage and because of their rule-keeping, because of their strict traditions. They assumed they were already in the kingdom. They assumed they were already, if you will, at the, the feast. But they're not. They're not because one can only enter the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay. It's not how you've been raised. It's not if you grew up in, in a church. It's not if you try to be a good person. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus drives that truth home by continuing the parable in verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called but few are chosen. And as I alluded to earlier, that there is some evidence in the ancient world of a king, when a king would throw a wedding feast like this, of, a, of the king himself supplying garments for his guests. And the end of the parable illustrates the truth that is taught explicitly throughout the New Testament, that our good works do not save us. That the only way for us to dwell with a holy God in heaven, the only way to be at that banquet, if you will, is for us to be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That the truth of the Bible that's so clear that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul will... The Apostle Paul will, will go to great lengths to, to develop and explain this doctrine under the guidance of the Spirit. That when by faith we embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, as I talked about last week, right? We're united to Him. The Spirit unites us to Christ through faith. And when that, when, when that takes place, there's a great exchange, right? Our sin is, is paid for by Jesus, and it's removed from us. And his perfect righteousness is imputed to us. And we're justified. We're declared righteous. Because when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And so this, the end of this parable drives that home. But these verses also remind us of a sobering truth. And please 
Don't miss this. That there are always imposters. That there are people who look like they are in the kingdom of God. There are people who claim to be Christians. They go to church. Maybe they give lip service to following Christ. But the reality is they have never truly forsaken their sin. And by faith embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. Maybe they're still trusting in their works. Maybe they're still wanting to be Lord of their lives. They, they don't want to go to hell. I mean, who would? But they, they can't give their life up to Jesus. But they kind of will try to straddle the fence and do both. Maybe they're just going along with the Christian thing because their, their spouse believes, right? And they, they just kind of want to make peace or, you know, not, not make waves, I guess we could say. Maybe they go along because their family believes. Whatever the reason, they're pretenders. They're imposters. And and they may have fooled others and those around them. They may have even fooled themselves, but they will not fool God. And one day, the Bible says, we will all stand before Almighty God on that final day of judgment. And again, only those who are united to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith will be allowed into the heavenly kingdom. Everyone else, the Bible says, will be cast into hell, a place of eternal punishment, because they're still in their sins. I'm sure you noticed the way the, uh, the way Jesus summarizes the parable. Kind of his, his take-home truth. In verse 14, For many are called, but few are chosen. What does that mean? For many are called, but few are chosen. Well, he's talking about what, is, what theologians are, will say is the general call, right, that goes out. Through the preaching of the gospel, many are called, Many are invited to enter the kingdom of God and be saved. And, and, and we believe in the free offer of the gospel. That's what, that's what we are called to do as believers, is to invite as many as possible. Come. Come and be saved. Come to Christ. And so many are called as the word goes out. But few truly respond by turning from their sin and trusting in Jesus. Why is that? Why is that? Why would so many reject this gracious offer of forgiveness and eternal life? Why would so many remain in their sin and stay on the broad path that leads to destruction? Why would so many choose, as we sang, to starve rather than come? Jesus tells us it's because few are chosen. Because few are chosen. And the Bible teaches that by nature we are dead in our sins. And that left to ourselves, we would all refuse to come to Christ. But God in His great mercy and grace chooses to love and save a group of people for His glory. And, and he, he doesn't choose them because of any worthiness in them. No. He chooses them because He is a loving and gracious God. 
And so as the invitation goes out, God acts first, not only in inviting, but in giving life to dead hearts, in in opening blind eyes, in giving faith by His Spirit so that people respond to His invitation by turning from their sins and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And the Bible's okay with that, right? It's not embarrassed about that. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Those who are invited and make a choice to refuse to come, they are responsible for it. But without God's grace, none of us would come. So all the glory goes to him. It's not because I made a good choice. It's because God is gracious and powerful and loving. And so I want to close with three takeaways, three ways I would encourage you to respond. Number one, praise God. Praise God. If you're a believer today, may this, may this parable remind you of the amazing grace that God has shown us. Right? We, were the, we were the poor. We were the blind. We were the outsiders. We were the beggars in the streets. We were the ones far off and separated from God by our sin. But God's sovereign grace chose us and sought us out. His regenerating spirit shone into our, the darkness of our hearts. His love wooed us and convinced us to come. His grace drew us to Christ. I love that song we sing, right? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? T'was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Right, and then we pray, pity the nations. God, save many, many, many people. God, it's his love that drew us in. And and when he did, he forgave us and he cleansed us and he changed us. Next thing we knew, we were seated at his banquet, no longer wearing the rags of our sin, but clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. No longer destitute and alone, but in a great company of other guests who had also been brought by his grace. And we looked around and we were at, at each other and just kind of like pinched ourselves, right? And, and, and daily and weekly we gather together and pinch ourselves and, and, and rejoice together. Can you believe it? Can you believe the grace we've been shown? We don't deserve to be here. We can't afford a banquet like this. We could never repay the king. But he doesn't expect us to. Right? His, his very son has paid the admission to the feast. The king is gracious and generous. And so we just enjoy his company. We just revel in his grace. We fellowship with him. We thank him. We praise him. And so let us do that today. Let us praise God for his amazing love. Let us praise him for his infinite kindness to us. 
Let us praise God for his generous mercy and for his glorious grace. And then secondly, I I pray, believer, that this, um, this teaching, this parable, reminds us, motivates us to go out for God. To not only praise God, but to go out for God. Because this passage reminds us that God is still gathering people for his feast. And he gives his invitation now through us. He compels people now through us. Isn't that what Paul said in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, right? 2 Corinthians 5. We, we urge people to be reconciled to God. We, bring, we have the privilege of bringing the good news that the feast is ready and that people are invited And so we urge them to leave their life of sin and to come to the banquet through faith in Christ. That this is real. This is a legitimate offer. That that the king is gracious and he's generous and he's invited them to come. That there's nothing else like this in the world. That this is the only place you can have peace with God and rest for your souls. And so we're to go out and invite all kinds of people, right? We're to meet people where they are, no matter what they look like on the outside. We remember that they're inside, they're impoverished, right? I mean, they could be like the most successful uh, by the world standards, you know, look like they have it all together. But without Christ, they're, they're starving. They're starving and they're looking in all the wrong places, trying to satisfy that hole in their soul that can only be filled with Christ. No matter who we meet, if they're without Christ, they need this banquet, this, this feast. The gospel is their only hope. Without this feast, they will starve for eternity. And so we urge them to come because the, the, the feast is still open, right? The people are still being gathered in. But the time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Everything's ready. Now's the proper time. They need to come. Because soon it'll be too late. And so we go out, in, again, with the compassion, compassion of Christ, we go out in confidence that God is still drawing people to himself, that God loves to glorify the Son, and He is glorified even as the gospel is proclaimed. And then the last exhortation I would give you, the last takeaway is to come to God. Come to God. If there's any here today who have never come to this feast, you've never entered the kingdom of God by turning from your sin and embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior by faith, then I bring you good news today. There is still room at the feast. The door is still open and you are invited. You're being invited right now to come. God is inviting you through the proclamation of his word to come to this feast, to leave your life of sin and rebellion. To forsake those things that fail to satisfy your soul and to come to the feast where you will find true joy and peace with God. Where you'll find life, eternal life and hope. 
where you'll find Christ. Christ alone who can satisfy your soul. And so won't you come? Won't you come to the banquet today? Why, why keep chasing? I think of what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55. Why, why do you spend your money on things that don't satisfy? Why do you keep chasing after things that will never meet your greatest need? Come to Christ. Don't be like the, the people in the parable. Don't be distracted by things of this world. Why place your hope in those things? They're all going to be burned up in the end. Don't let money, don't let pleasures, don't let, let other, what, worried about what other people are going to think, don't let them keep you from coming. God is inviting you to his feast. And the admission is free. Because Christ has paid for every seat there by his life, death, and resurrection. And so the the feast is ready. Now's the time to enter. Today is the day of salvation. Turn from your sins and by faith embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior because you only enter through Christ. Don't spurn God's gracious invitation. And so like I said at the beginning, there's really two kinds of people described here, isn't there? In this parable. There's people who reject God's invitation. And there's people who accept God's gracious invitation. And so which group are you going to be in? And believer, one last word. May you be reminded again what we've, what we've been given. That by God's grace you are at the feast. And so enjoy God's presence. Fellowship with him daily. Worship him. Rejoice in him. Be around God's people as much as you can. So we can rejoice together as we follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, once again, we are, we are overwhelmed. Lord, we stand in awe of your grace. What a generous God you are. What a loving and gracious God you are to, to save rebels like us. Even at the great cost of, of the suffering and death of your Son, to invite us to be with you and your risen Son, the Lord Jesus, forever. Oh, what a gracious God you are, and we, we praise you and thank you for that invitation and for your love that, that drew many of us already to you. And we pray, Lord, again, that your, your grace and love would continue to go out in a powerful way. May you Continue to show pity to the nations around us, Lord. May you continue to glorify your grace and, and the work of your Son by drawing many to yourself. Thank you for the privilege we have of being your ambassadors, 
of taking that good news, of taking that summons to this lost world. Please open our eyes to the, to the needs around us, to the people around us who are starving. And Lord, may you continue to be glorified as we just daily rest in you, as we daily enjoy your grace, as we daily are reminded of that it's Christ's righteousness and not our own. May you be glorified and may your people be blessed and encouraged today. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you stand please, I want to continue to worship through song.